We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have Stephanie Tatchell. We are going to talk about and highlight the fact that May is Stroke Awareness Month. And so as we kind of target this conversation, I, Stephanie, you actually have a couple of great examples of living the stroke life. And so um, I'm excited for you to kind of share all aspects of this. And I'm just going to throw this back to you and give you the floor and share a little bit about your journey from pregnancy to some other family crisis that I'm a little bit aware of. So. Well, so, um, well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about Linux. We don't always get the opportunity to kind of divulge it all in one conversation. So that's always nice. Um, but yeah, so I, we got pregnant, we were excited. We had gender reveal. Um, you know, we, I have, we have a son that is, was four at the time of Linux's birth. Uh, Linux is 21 months old currently. Um, but yeah, so we had a gender reveal and found out we were having a girl. And so we were so excited to have, you know, the, the boy and girl combo. Um, went through the, you know, I was 35 when I was going to have her. So we had to do some extra testing and, you know, extra ultrasounds and all that stuff. And, you know, pregnancy was great, was awesome, had no, you know, no indications of an unhealthy baby. Um, you know, we went in and, um, had our final ultrasound probably, I think it was about six weeks before Linux was born and everything was perfect. Um, I, I wasn't sick during the pregnancy. I mean, I, was felt awesome, felt great. Um, and then about probably three days before Linux, we had, I had a, a scheduled C-section because my previous, um, birth had been, um, a C-section. So it was a scheduled C-section for Linux, no big deal. Um, about three days before Linux was born, my husband that was 35 had a stroke. Um, and so we spent, you know, um, two days prior to Linux's birth in the hospital with my husband and all of his, you know, stroke stuff. He luckily is fine now. Um, we don't even know why he had a stroke. Um, we tend to, we, we tend to hope and talk about maybe he had a stroke to take some of the damage away from my daughter's stroke that she had. Um, that makes us feel better at least about, you know, my husband having a stroke, um, very close to the same time that supposedly Linux had a stroke in utero. Um, so we get out of the hospital with my husband on a Friday, that Tuesday, we go in to have a, um, the scheduled C-section with Linux and we find out that she has aspirated on meconium. Um, so at some point she had, um, you know, had her, you know, her first poop in utero and then aspirated on it. So she took in that first deep breath in utero and all that meconium went into her lungs. They think that happened literally, you know, a couple of days before birth. So it would have been right around the same time my husband had a stroke, um, maybe the same day even, um, which is crazy to think about. But that is why we, you know, say that maybe he, they had one at the same time and he took some of the damage from her. So, um, you know, we don't know, you know, we don't know, but I, we know that it happened and, and that's how we like to think about it. But 
So she aspirated on the meconium. She, you know, they, they take her out and she is not breathing. You know, they had to work on her for a little bit. I didn't get to see her, um, you know, for hours and hours and hours. We went, we're at a hospital where they don't have a NICU. Um, and so they tried to keep her there for a little while. My husband got to, my family got to go see her and, and she started breathing and having decent stats, but they weren't great. You know, they knew that they knew that there was meconium because her fingernails were stained. They saw that in the, you know, the, the amniotic fluid. Um, and so they knew they had aspirated on it. They just didn't know the damage necessarily that that had caused. And so eventually that night, the night of her birth, I finally got to go down and at least see her as she was going on to the ambulance um, to take her to the, to the next, you know, to the, a different hospital that had a NICU. So she was there at that hospital. I was still at my hospital because I had had a C-section and couldn't, you know, couldn't physically get to the hospital she was at. The next, that was on a Tuesday. The next day was Wednesday. I still was in my hospital. She was still in hers. And that was really hard, I think, on my husband having to figure out who should he be there for. I'm just had a C-section. Um, I've really only seen my daughter one time. And that was through, you know, the plexiglass things that go, you know, where they transport them on an ambulance. And then, you know, my daughter's basically fighting for her life at another hospital. And so that was really hard, I think, on Michael to figure out who, you know, my husband to figure out who he should support. Um, so event, you know, eventually I, you know, basically told my doctors at my hospital, like, I got to go see my daughter. <laughs> I got to get out of this hospital. Um, and so they gave me a day pass and I got to go over her and visit her. Um, you know, and I was in wheelchairs and they were, you know, willing me up, which I know, you know, a lot of family, you know, a lot of mothers have to do that, you know, in between their rooms and the NICU. And so I spent most of the day there. Um, and I would come back to my hospital to spend the night. Um, and then I would go back to their, the hospital that she was in to, to be with her. The second day of life, um, we get a call. I'm at my hospital. Uh, my husband's at our, my hospital as well. Um, and it's about five in the clock in the morning. And we get a phone call from the NICU that she was currently in. And they said, you need to get here. I don't know that she's going to survive the next couple of hours. And so we didn't really know a diagnosis at that point because she was, they were still trying to get her to breathe and, 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 you know, figure out how, you know, the, the, the extent of this meconium aspiration. So we get there and she is just white. Um, there's no circulation. Um, she had patches of red where, you know, her body was trying to provide blood. Basically she, you know, come to find out she had PPHN, which is persistent pulmonary hypertension. It only happens in the majority of the time in full-term babies. And she was 39 weeks and five days. So she was full-term, um, you know, everything was functioned and was functioning and, and was fully developed. Um, but because of this meconium aspiration inside of her lungs that she aspirated, um, it just gunked up her entire lung system. And so the lungs couldn't expand. It couldn't bring in air. Um, this tar, they basically had to get rid of this tar that was inside of her lungs. And um, due to that, she just had this event two days after birth where she just turned completely white and just stopped circulating blood. We knew at that point, you know, they, they basically had said, you know, that probably caused some, some significant brain damage, that event. Um, but we can't really do an MRI yet because she's on a vent. Um, so we don't really know, you know, exactly what her prognosis is. We don't know anything about, you know, what kind of condition this is going to cause later. But we, you know, we do feel like this is going to be um, a situation where she's going to have some brain damage. And so we waited out those 10 days until she could get off the vent. Um, and because her body was 
fully developed. It didn't take her long to clear the meconium. Um, it didn't take her long to get off the vent, um, you know, get off all the medications that she was, you know, that were helping her survive this 10 day period. Um, at 10 days, she got off the vent and they could roll her down to do an official MRI. Um, and they did the official MRI and um, she had severe, severe brain damage. Um, and I remember sitting, you know, they had, you know, we, my, my parents were there and I remember them saying, well, we just need to have this conversation with you and Michael. And so it was like, oh my gosh. And so they took us into this conference room and, and the doctors were there, the neurologists were there. We had um, the nurse that had been taking care of Lennox was there. And they basically just said, you know, she had such traumatic brain damage that her, um, you know, we looked at the pictures on the MRI. And I remember thinking, I can't even look at that picture. Um, that picture speaks a thousand words to me, right? If you, you know, the doctors could say all day long that she has severe damage, but when you see the picture and you see the damage that it really is there, that was a really tough thing to see. Um, you know, and, and, and where your brain should be white, there wasn't a lot of there, you know, there, you could just tell that it was, it was not, it was very abnormal. And so I remember, you know, the, the neurologist saying, you know, because of this damage, um, she'll never walk or talk or eat. And, um, you know, he said the brain does heal, but there is quite, you know, a significant amount of damage. And so I, you know, me and Michael just sat there and kind of took on the news and just thought, of how do we be parent? How are we going to be parents to this? How is she going to survive this? You know, um, you know, and the I, I, nurses are, you know, definitely angels from God in our opinion that, you know, they got us through all of these tough conversations because when you leave that conference room, where do you go? What do you do? You know, you go back to be with your, you know, your, your baby at bedside, but you're just sobbing because you're thinking, oh, how do, what, how, what do I do with this information? Um, you know, and those, you know, those nurses, you know, um, sat with us, they prayed with us, they talked to us, they, you know, also gave us resources of things that we could do or, you know, all, you know, so they were just so supportive during this, you know, whole ordeal. Um, you know, she, she, they had her, you know, sedated for a very, you know, a very long time. And so we didn't even hold her probably for the first week or so. I think that was another tough thing because I never really bonded with her for a long time. Um, because when you can't hold your baby and you can't, you know, we couldn't even really get close to her because she had all these things on her, um, you know, and, I, and, and so that was a really tough time, you know, for me to be able to bond with her. I felt like I was still pregnant, um, to be honest. I didn't feel like that, that baby there was the baby that was in my stomach for that long. I, there was a disconnect emotionally um, you know, until I got to hold her and then I got to try to feed her. And, you know, so I just progressively, I got to bond. It was just a lot slower than it was with my son. You know, I, I, you know, birthed my son and then I got to hold him and feed him and talk to him and see him smile and do all those things that, you know, that, that helps with that, that creating that bond. Um, so with Linux, that was one of the things I think was tough is just, you know, like I said, I was kind of having this out of body experience with, that's not the baby that I, you know, I didn't have that bonding. So um, that was really important once we finally got to hold her and see her. And, and even when they were giving us this news, um, I hadn't even held her yet. So, um, you know, it, it, that was a definitely a tough, a tough time. And, and that was really the, the it, it got better from there. I would say probably once we got that news and, you know, she was off the vent and she was getting healthier. 
Um, and, and we'd really gotten her diagnosis at that point. So, um, you know, we knew that from here, you know, it was, it, we had to get out of the hospital. Basically we had to start life. So you felt like once you heard the news and the direction you needed to go, that that offered you some insight into, okay, here, next steps. Yes. Yeah. 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 I felt like, okay, now we know what's wrong. You know, we know what, what her prognosis is. We know what, we know the next steps to get out of the hospital because probably pre previous to that, we didn't know how much damage she had done. We didn't know that she was going to need a feeding tube. We didn't know all of these things. And so it was kind of this waiting game for 10 days until we could get this MRI. Um, and then once we got the MRI, it was like, okay, this, this is what it is. Um, and so we, you know, kind of got went into the parental mode, like, how are we going to take care of her? How do we get out of this hospital? What do we need to do to get her home so we can, you know, start our life with her it was kind of the turning point for us. Did you feel like you had to be, um, pretty proactive as a parent to get those next steps accomplished? Or was it just the natural progression of, Hey, we're going to wait and let Lennox decide on, on the timeline for this? So it was kind of, um, you know, one of the things that you, we had to for sure do is make sure that she could eat um, and, and, and suck from a bottle. And all of those things, you know, all these babies are, you know, are born with um, these uh, natural instincts and sucking is one of those. So for a while she could suck, but they did tell us, you know, like once that baby, you know, that first week, month, whatever goes across they're you know, they're no longer, it's not going to be a natural instinct anymore. And um, her brain probably won't allow her to coordinate the sucking and swallowing. Um, and so we pushed really, you know, we pushed her really hard to try to suck from a bottle. Um, we, you know, we even tried breastfeeding her um, and she just couldn't coordinate that sucking swallow, suck it and then swallow it. When, you know, when Lennox was 12 days old, I was put back in the hospital postpartum hemorrhaging. You know, day 12, um, after Lennox was born and after I'd had my C-section, um, I had told my husband, I just don't feel good. I've got to go home. And so um, we both went home for the rest of the day. It was like noon. Uh, we both went home to my parents' house for the rest of the day. And I said, I need, you know, I need to take a nap. And so I took a nap. I woke up and I went to the, to the bathroom and um, tissue came out. Um, you know, and, and they tell you, you know, if it's bigger than an egg, you need to call and, you know, well, is it like as long as an egg, as thick as an egg, you know, like you're thinking all of these things. Like, I don't know what that means, <laughs> right? Cause it's happening. And I'm like, I don't know. And so this piece was pretty significant, but it was like long, like an egg, but it wasn't thick, like an egg. So I'm like, well, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's not big enough. Right. So I'm like, it's be fine. I'll be fine. I'll go take, I'm gonna go finish taking my nap and I'll get back. You know, this is, so I didn't, I laid down for like a minute and then I was like calling, you know, my, the hospital that I delivered and said, Hey, this is what's going on. Like, you know, is this, is this bad? And you know, and they said, well, why don't you give it two more hours? And if you can, if you still are, you know, if you're still, um, have, um, you know, the, this, this tissue coming out, come back. This, it, basically they're blood clots is what they're called. And so I said, okay. So I, I laid down my husband, um, and my, and my son went to run some errands. My parents, you know, the parents' house that we were at, were at the NICU with Linux. So I'm home by myself. And so, um, my husband gets home in two hours. And so I'm like, Hey, I'm going to get up. And, and as soon as I got up, um, I could just feel blood clots coming out. And so I went to the bathroom. I, I can't stop it. It's just like, this blood is just like flowing out. Um, and so my husband had, had, he had just got home with, with Tobias. And so he had put Tobias down for a nap. And I, I said, Hey, Michael, I need you to get me a towel. We need to go to the hospital. And so he brings me a hand towel. I was like, that's not going to, that's not going to sop up what's coming out of here. 
I was like, you need to go get me like a beach towel and you need to go get Tobias. And so, um, we were, you know, I'm, I've got a towel underneath my legs and we're getting in the car. Um, and it, it did. So, we, and we get to the hospital and I'm literally, I mean, if I stand up, so basically when I would sit down, you know, it, all it would fill up with blood. And then when I would stand up, it would just dump. And so um, I would, you know, I went, you know, we got to the hospital is a Sunday, of course. So there was no like, you know, none of the major doctors were there. And, and so they had to call in someone to do an ultrasound to see if I had um, some of the placenta still attached, some, you know, some of the, the baby stuff still in there. And so they did an ultrasound and they said, yeah, it's hard to tell, but um, we're gonna have to bring in the doctor because this bleeding is not stopping. And so in my head, I remember thinking, you can't bleed this much and stay alive. Um, it's just not possible. And so I had to go to the bathroom and I said, and they were like, okay, we'll get up and walk. And I'm like, I don't think you understand. If I get up and walk, I'm just, I'm going to bleed to death. And I really had that fear. And so they went and got me a bedpan and, and they were like, you know, just go in the bedpan. And I went, you know, I lifted up my hips and I filled up that bedpan within seconds with blood. And so they just realized, oh my gosh, like this, like this, this has got to stop. And so um, the doctor finally got in. There was at one point, um, they said, if you know, if you start feeling lightheaded, because you can only lose so much blood before your body just gives up and passes out. So they said, you know, if you start feeling lightheaded, let me know. And so my husband was in the room and two days probably prior to that. So I think it was like day eight or day nine, we had taken Linux off. It's probably day nine. So two, two, three days before that, we had just taken Linux off the vent. Um, and so my husband had watched that occur and he was scarred from it because when they took her out, she just couldn't breathe. And it was like this whole, cause your body has to learn how to breathe real quick. Cause it, it's never done it. Um, and so he was traumatized by that. And he had told me, I wish I wouldn't have seen that. And so when I'm laying in this hospital bed and bleeding, I, I start to feel lightheaded and I'm like sweating. Um, and I knew I was about to pass out. I said to Michael, you've got to leave. You've got to leave this room because you, I don't think that you can handle me passing out, you know, because I knew he had just been through this other traumatic. And so he was like, okay, you know, like, he's like, no, I'm not leaving. I was like, just please leave, you know? So he left the room and I looked at the nurse and I'm like, I'm about to pass out. And so they just, they're squeezing the IV bag because they need to get these liquids in me as quick as possible to try to keep me as, you know, aware as they possibly can be. Um, I didn't pass out. I don't, that was literally like, I don't even know how that even happened because I was just losing liters and liters of blood. And so um, when the doctor finally got there, she said, Stephanie, she's like, if I can't stop this bleeding, I, I need you to sign this paperwork that you're okay with take, getting a hyster hysterectomy. And so I knew at the moment, like, you got to, whatever you have to do, you have to stop the bleeding or I'm not going to make it. So we, she takes me into the operating room. Um, you know, I tell my family, you know, I love them, you know, I'm going in, you know. Um, and so she said, if I have to come out, I'll get Michael's consent for the hysterectomy. Even though you signed this, I'll come out and get his consent. And so they take me back. And, and, and really in reality, I was so scared of like, honestly, like I knew I couldn't bleed for that much longer. So I was just like, get me back in there. Like, you know, cause usually when you go into surgery, you're nervous or like, I, I didn't have, I wasn't nervous at all. I was like, I, I this is, I know I, this is life-saving for me. And so we get in there. Um, she can't stop the bleeding. Um, she can't get it to stop. And so she goes out and tells Michael, we're going to have to do a hysterectomy. And so Michael's like, okay, whatever you have to do. And my mom told me later, um, my mom told me that she went and talked to the doctor and said, you've got to save my daughter's life because I know she's stressed out right now. And even if she doesn't have the will to live, you need to fight for her, you know? And so hearing that from your parents, right? You're, you know, your parents are usually the strong ones. And I hear that later. Um, I didn't obviously didn't know that at the time because I was in surgery. Um, but my mom was like, I was so scared that, you know, that you, 
because your life was, so, you know, this was the hard, you know, this is the hardest 12 days of your life that, you know, that you would just, she's like, I just didn't know what was going to happen. She was scared for my life because when you see all this blood, you know, you know, that there's, there's, you know, significant circumstances there. And so, um, luckily they, the, as soon as I, the, the doctor went back into the emergency room, they had put this balloon in my uterus. And so it acts like, um, it goes in and it butts up against where the placenta is, where all those big blood vessels are. And it stops that bleeding and helps it clot again. And so when they blew that up, they finally, finally, it just took a lot, it just took a little bit longer than they would have liked it stopped the bleeding. And so they didn't have to do a hysterectomy and they fill it up with water. Um, and then over the next so many days, they let water come out of it and make sure you're not bleeding just so you can make sure that that area has clotted again. So they, they got it all under control. Um, and then they go to take me off the medication anesthesia and I don't wake up. And so they had to come out and tell Michael, look, she's not waking up. We can't, we can't get her to wake up. She still has vitals and she's still, you know, she's still alive, but we can't get her to wake up. And so come to find out, I have, um, a gene, you know, I have a gene that can't process, it, it can't process that type of anesthesia quickly. And so, um, what happened is, is it was an anesthesia that they use when you've eaten stuff you know, when you have stuff in your stomach. Um, and because I didn't plan on going in surgery, I had eaten lunch and all of these things. So they had to give me this different, this different type of anesthesia. And so come to find out, I just don't have it. it um, it's like a, there, there's, I had a deficiency. And so it wasn't able to process this anesthesia in a normal thing. So I was out. Um, I wasn't coherent. I, I was still out for another four hours after they took me off of it. And so, you know, when I come to, I have, you know, I have no idea that any of this has occurred. And so luckily I didn't have to have the hysterectomy. Um, I did come out from anesthesia, um, you know, and then the next day, the next couple of days, the next day I stayed in the hospital and they would take so many milliliters um, of water out of that balloon every two or three hours and make sure it wasn't bleeding until it was completely, the balloon was completely empty. And then they pulled it out and I, and I wasn't bleeding, but I was like super paranoid. So I didn't leave. For, I was like, you're, I'm staying in here for another 24 hours. Like I was trying to breastfeed. So I was like having to pump before the, you know, after the surgery, during the surgery, you know, like not during the surgery, but right before the surgery, just so I could, you know, cause that was the only thing I could do for Linux. It's literally the only thing I do was provide her with breast milk. And so I was like adamant, like as soon as you give me a pump and as soon as over, I need a pump, you know, because I had to make sure that I could, you know, provide for her. And so it was just a really challenging time. And, you know, and then, you know, so for those next two or three days, I was in my hospital again, to, you know, Lennox was in her hospital again, and we had family members staying with Lennox and we had family members staying with me and they would switch back and forth so that people had breaks, um, you know, and, and, you know, uh, just trying to take care of both of us. But in reality, within 12 days, Michael had a stroke, Lennox had severe brain damage, and I almost bled to death. Thankfully, we're all, you know, me and Michael are okay and can still care for Lennox and Tobias and, and still, you know, we're still here for, you know, for both of our children. Wow, what an incredible first two weeks of Linux's life that y'all have had as a family. Okay, so now take us back to Linux and how we're back to the feeding therapy or the feeding bottles and all of that. And so, um, you know, we got to a point where she just wasn't consuming enough from the bottle. Um, and so basically, you know, she kept getting better. Her stats were getting better. You know, she was no longer on a vent. She was on room air, you know, very little medicine. Um, we did know because of her brain damage that she was having seizures, um, pretty regularly. And so, you know, she was on seizure medication. Um, but really in reality, that was it. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't a bunch of tubes on her. She didn't need oxygen. 
Um, you know, she was, you know, her oxygen levels were great. Her heart, you know, everything was great. Her out, you know, urine output, you know, anything that they were measuring was great other than this feeding situation. Um, so her body needed time to recover from this meconium aspiration. And then once it recovered from that, it was basically just making sure that we could feed her. Um, and so it came to a point where we had to have the conversation that, you know, um, she was more than likely going to need a feeding tube, um, a G tube. And so, you know, one of the things that I wish I would, hindsight, I wish I would have known. And so when she was having the pulmonary issues, um, you know, they were calling in doctors that specialized, you know, you know, the specialized in lungs and, and pulmonary stuff. Um, you know, when she was first born, they wanted to check her heart. So they called in cardiologists to check, you know, to, to check her heart. When they figured out that she was going to have brain, you know, brain damage, they called the neurologist for support. Um, but when they decided that, you know, that we really needed to go to the G-tube route, they didn't call in a specialist to talk to us about that. Um, and so hindsight, I wish I would have asked for that. Uh, but, you know, I you don't know what you don't know. Um, and so I feel like, you know, whenever you're, you know, there, there's a specialist for every part of the body. And so I wish I would have even thought, you know, okay, we're, we're, you know, we're really on the, you know, the, the GI part of it. I wish I would have thought, oh, let's call in a GI and get a specialist to kind of, you know, support us and talk us through this. Um, and so when we, you know, we decided to go to the feed tube route on um, the G tube route. Um, and they put that in at the same time, they were putting her on that. They basically were kind of weaning her off any of her pain medications, um, because she had been on significant pain medications to kind of keep her sedated while she was on the vent, while we were doing MRIs, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And so about four weeks into her hospital stay is when we went, you know, we went through um, getting this G-tube in. And, you know, one of the things that we didn't know at the time is, you know, like, what kind of size do you put in? You know, what there's different kinds of buttons. What kind of button do you put in? And so we didn't even know all those options. So we just went with what they suggested that ended up being a, a bigger issue down the road. And, 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 you know, we can, um, that's kind of a little bit later in her story. Um, but once we got that G tube in and, and we could feed her and she was keeping food down and, um, you know, one of the things that kind of came up was neurological irritability, um, which I knew nothing about. And so they were, you know, they said, well, cause she would just cry and cry and you couldn't, you know, she, you couldn't really like console her at all. Um, and then she wouldn't sleep because she was just crying so much. And so, um, they, you know, basically told us that when, you know, when you have this much severe brain damage, that your, your body is just irritated, your brain is, you know, the, the, it doesn't know how to process stuff. And so it's called neurological, neurological irritability. And so we still battle with that today. Um, so that was one thing that we had to figure out, how can we get her comfortable? Um, how can we, you know, get her to where she's in a state of peace? as opposed to constantly just fighting this, this irritability that she was dealing with. And so, you know, there's some medications for that. And so we did those, you know, we tried those medications and they seemed to help. And, and we ended up going home, you know, five weeks to the, you know, five weeks to the day that she was born. Um, so we didn't have a long stay. Uh, it was traumatic. Those five weeks were traumatic enough. <laughs> um, but, you know, because she was a full-term baby, you know, once she you know, her body was able to heal from this meconium aspiration. She was, she was in it to win it. And, you know, her body kind of took over and, and we could go home, you know, after we had gotten, you know, her feeding under control. So when you brought her home, was she what you would consider um, uh, typical as far as like, did, did she feel like 
your your newborn baby like Tobias was you know like big yeah, brother was yeah. Big so. so, you know, we, and I, you know, we, we lived, um, you know, in Shawnee, Oklahoma at the time, you know, our hospitals and delivery hospitals and all that were in Oklahoma City. Um, I have parents that live in Edmond. And so what we would do is me and my husband would stay at my parents' house and go back and forth to the NICU. So I hadn't been at our house in Shawnee um, since before she was born. And so when we took her home was the first time I had been in our house and in her nursery and all of this stuff. So when I first walked into the house, I just started bawling because this is not the situation I was going to, you know, I, I saw all these things in my, in our house, in her nursery. And they were things that I had happy, you know, I was, I was excited for her to see this or see this, or we had bought this toy. And, you know, I just realized that she's never going to be able to process those things. Um, she's not going to, you know, say, oh, I, you know, I, I couldn't be like Linux. I painted this picture for you or I made this, um, you know, like picture, you know, this thing for you because I knew you would like those colors, you know, or things that I had thought about when I was making those things for her nursery, um, you know, and, and, and the, and, what I had pictured for when we had come home, this exciting, our baby's home, and, and I'm so excited for her to be home, and, and now we can, you know, play with her and do all those things, and that, that reality was very different, and so when I walked into that house, it was just like, this is not the environment that I wanted to come home to, or that I thought I was going to come home to, so I think that was the first challenge, was getting home, and kind of losing those expectations that I had built up, um, but as far as her, um, no, she was definitely not an, an ornable baby. She still was just, cr you know, crying all the time. I mean, it was just this neurological irritability was all the time. Um, you know, for the first, we couldn't get her to eat. Um, she was on a feeding pump. And so every time we would feed her, she would just throw it up. Um, so it was managing that as well. And then, you know, what would happen is, you know, for the first six weeks at home, um, I would stay up till two or three in the morning and take care of her. Um, and then my husband would go to sleep and then he would wake up and take care of her until like eight or nine in the morning. So we were on shifts, um, you know, and so it was, you know, it, it was definitely not the experience that we would have expected. It definitely was not the experience that we had with Tobias, our older son. Um, and so we had to kind of navigate that and figure out how are we, you know, how can we survive this? Um, you know, cause we were on completely different schedules and she just wasn't, you know, wasn't happy. Um, and then one day I, you know, I, you know, I, I had to get out of the house. So I did some shopping therapy <laughs> and, um, and so I had to kind of, you know, um, kind of disconnect for a day. And I, and my, so my husband took care of Linux for the day and, and I came back and I noticed there was this, you know, underneath her tube, there was this, like the skin that had looked like it was coming out from, you know, her belly. And so, you know, um, I, well, I said, that's obvious, that's not normal, right? So we end up going to the emergency room. And one other thing that I really learned with Linux too is the ER doc, you know, ER doctors are not really, you know, expertise in pediatrics. And then they're definitely not expertise in pediatrics with severe brain damage. Um, and so, you know, we went in and, and we're showing them, you know, this this butt, you know, her button area is just like oozing and it should, there's just something that's wrong here. Um, and so they end up, you know, having to call down, you know, a, um, a doctor from the PICU, uh, from ICU. And he looked at it and said, that's a granulation. Um, and we're like, what's a granulation? You know, we had no idea what that meant. 
Um, and so basically it's, you know, you know, when they basically cut this hole in, in a baby's stomach, again, it goes all the way down into their stomach. Um, that lining, sometimes that stomach can cause, um, you know, basically for the tissue to come back up and it's on the inside of the stomach and it, it also comes out on the outside. And so it's not uncommon, um, but Lennox's was really severe. Um, and so we end up having to, um, you know, get admitted into the PICU at that point. And we're probably, you know, this, she was born in uh, end of July, and this is probably the beginning of September. So it's been you know, six, seven weeks or so since, you know, since we've, since she's been born and probably about four weeks or so since we've put in the button. Um, and so, you know, um, they actually called over a GI specialist to come over and look at this situation um, in her belly and come to find out um, when the surgeon had put in her, her tube, they hadn't put in the right size. And so they, you know, the GI specialist doctor took out the tube and then they have this little measuring device that they can put into that hole in their stomach and it will tell you how long her stomach is and how long the tube needs to be. And so when they measured her, she needed a 2.5 centimeter tube and she had a 1.9 in. Um, and so because that tube was smaller than that, the spacing, it had just done a lot of damage to her stomach. Um, and so that has what that this entire time that she's been irritable, it wasn't neurological. It, some of it was neurological irritability, but it was also because she was in so much pain. Um, and, and we didn't know that until that, you know, that, um, granulation had made it to the surface. Wow. Um, and how would you know how, I mean, yeah. As a parent, right. it's like, how do I determine whether this is neurological ir irritability or my child's in pain? How do I determine right. the difference here? So, yeah. Exactly. So that was really tough. And, and, and luckily, you know, we, they had, you know, the right buttons on, on, you know, in stock. And so we put the new button in, um, you know, we took some, um, you know, Omethrazole, which is like your Prilosec, your Nexium, and that's, you know, helps cure ulcers and stomachs. And so we took pretty high doses of that just to cure, you know, cure her stomach. Um, and then the other thing, you know, and, and she had put in, there's several different types of buttons. Um, the one that had been, you know, surgically put in, you know, back when we were in the NICU was called a, a Mickey. The balloon that's in there that basically holds the button in, you, you, there's like a, you stick in this tube and then there's a balloon at the end of it. And that balloon is filled with water. And so when that, when that balloon is full of water, it can't slip out of that, that hole in the stomach. And so the Mickey, it's, it's, the balloon is a lot bigger. And so there's a lot more surface area on her stomach. Um, and so we went with a different version. It's called the mini one. It's a smaller balloon. And so it has less surface area on the stomach and it has been a game changer for Linux. Um, and so, you know, that it allowed that space to heal a lot quicker. Um, she did end up having to have a scope because what happened was, as it was bleeding, you know, that, that, that area was so damaged inside her stomach lining that it would bleed. And so when she would go to throw up, you know, or, or spit up, you know, her, her formula, it would just be all bloody. And so that, you know, that went on for several, several, several months trying to figure out, trying to get that healed because you can't just take out the button and let it heal. You got to keep the button in and, and still continue to feed through it, you know, and the stomach acid's not great for it, you know, so that's why we were taking the higher doses of, you know, the omethrazole and just trying to get that stomach acid low enough to where her stomach had time to heal. Um, and so eventually, you know, it healed um, and that was no longer, you know, a concern, you know, the button now is in great condition, um, you know, but it took, it 
took a long, long time to get there. Um, and, and, you know, when we would go to pull out her button to change it every three months or so, we couldn't even get it out because it would be so swollen and, and gunky in there. And so it's a totally different experience now. And that part of her, that part of her stomach is, is absolutely healed. And, and, you know, we took the right steps to get all that taken care of, but yeah, that's one of the tough things with Linux is that because she has such severe brain damage, it's, it's difficult to know, um, what her cries mean. Um, and if there is even a difference in cries, if, if she can, you know, be able to, to be able to tell us when something's in pain or when it's just irritability or when she's tired. Um, you know, those are all things that we've had, a, you know, it's really challenging, you know, to navigate and, and I'm probably the best at it, but I can't watch her all the time, you know, so um, it's difficult for, you know, other family members to know that or, um, you know, her care, you know, other caregivers outside of the home to know that. Um, and so that's one of the, probably the biggest challenges is, is just, you know, knowing, you know, knowing what she's trying to tell us, um, you know, and, and once we had gotten that, that, um, that MRI scan at 10 days, they basically were like, you got to come back in six months and we need to redo this scan so we can really see, you know, what the, you know, the underlying effects are, um, as well as, you know, what, you know, give you a better prognosis for how much damage is really in there. And so, um, February of 2020 was six and she was six months old. Um, we went in and, and got that final MRI to kind of tell us where she was at. Um, and, the majority of her brain, um, because it was so damaged, has been absorbed by the body. Um, so there's very little brain tissue left. Um, and, and it's bad when you walk into a neurologist's office and they're trying to give you the results and, and they, you know, precurse it with, this is not going to be good. You know, this is, this is pretty bad. Um, you know, and so at that moment, I was just like, oh my gosh, you know. And so, but yeah, that's basically, you know, they showed us the scans, um, you know, and, and, and your brain should have, you know, a shape. Um, you know, and it should be white because that's all your brain tissue, you know, the white matter you should be able to see and, and hers is just pretty black with some splotches of white. Wow. Um, yeah, so the majority of her brain was so severely damaged that the body just absorbed it. it. It no longer had a function. And so the body absorbed it and now it's filled with fluid. Um, Do you remember the emotions I guess that you and Michael went through as far as um, now I'm, we're learning that my daughter has this and yes, this diagnosis. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you could just speak to a little bit of that yeah. if you're comfortable with that. Yeah. So when we had gotten the, the, the MRI at 10 days, um, we still had a lot of hope because it still looked, her brain still looked like a brain. Um, you know, just visually seeing it, you know, we did see a lot of damage. And so for those six months when she would do things like, we had a lot of hope like, oh, well, maybe that part of the brain isn't damaged or maybe her, her brain healed there. Um, or she would, you know, like um, maybe, you know, you know, be able to do some more tummy time and lift up her head a little bit more. And so, you know, we just, oh my gosh, you know, maybe she's going to be able to at least lift up her head or, you know, like she would, you know, sometimes we put her on her side and she would be able to roll over to her tummy. And so we just had all this hope and, you know, we were trying to be realistic, but we had a ton of hope. And our family had a ton of hope, you know, they would read stories about how, you know, like um, doctors tell you, oh, that, you know, that your kid's never going to do these things. And there were all these stories where they are going, you know, where these kids had actually done these things that the doctors said they wouldn't. And then when we, you know, had this six month appointment and we saw that there was very little brain tissue, 
I feel the, just the whole room. I just, I just remember like all I could see was the computer screen. There was, I had like very little peripheral vision. I could, I really don't remember a lot of the conversation to be honest. Um, and I do remember just looking at my husband and he, you know, and, and I'm typically emotionally like, I'm pretty strong. My husband's, you know, I'm very, you know, we're very, we're not pretty strong people. We don't cry that much. I cry a lot now than I ever used to. <laughs> um, but I just remember me and my, I mean, we are just like, just, it's just, it's all this emotion that we've held for six months that's just been shattered, you know, in, in one picture, in one conversation. So I want to go back to that hope that you had yeah. mentioned earlier. You held on to that hope for so long. Um, I know it's so critical to have hope as a parent that we hope the doctors are wrong. We hope she's going to get better. We hope, um, we just, we hope that life is different than what they keep telling us it's going to be. Or I'm trying to choose my words carefully, but speak to uh, the process that you went through from having all of this hope in your heart that, that they were wrong to kind of transitioning to the point where this was going to be your reality, I guess. Could you just kind of walk us through a little bit of that? Um, no, I think, no, that's an excellent question. And I think that's, that's, it's definitely important. Um, so my, I have a degree in biology and chemistry, and so I'm very left brain in general. Um, and so for me, um, I had to, I had to transition that maybe she, maybe she'll out, you know, she'll be um, the outlier. She'll be the one that beats the odds and she will just start walking and she will just start talking. I, you know, um, at that six month appointment, we got that final scan. I really had to, for me emotionally, I couldn't, I couldn't keep the hope that she was going to be the outlier. I had to be realistic um, with the outcome of, of, of her life. Um, you know, even our family, you know, we actually, after we got that six month scan that night, we called every one of our family over, um, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, um, anyone that would come. Um, and you know, we put those scans up on the TV and we said, look, this is Lennox's brain. Um, this, this is the outcome. This is what the doctors has told us. Um, and we say that because, um, we have got, we've got to heal from this and move on. We've got to really start planning for what her outcome really is um, and, and, and start working on um, how we're going to support her, um, even though she's not going to be able to do all these things. Because what was really challenging is we would have, you know, we'd have family members that will say, they would call us and say, hey, I have this friend and their daughter had, you know, they told them that she would never walk and now she's walking. And so what that would do for us is give us false hope. And that was just really hard, you know, to, to, to deal with. And so we, you know, we, like I said, after we got those scans, we brought everyone, you know, to our house and, and showed those scans to everyone just so they could really put a picture. A picture to me spoke a lot more words than the doctors are saying she's not going to do this. When they saw that her brain, that she had no brain tissue and or very little brain tissue, it was more apparent to them that brains don't just heal. You don't get a new brain. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, no, that's an excellent question. And, and I think now we're more in a, a life of realistic. We still pray for miracles. You know, I, I 100% believe that it could happen, but I don't, I don't bank off that, if that makes sense emotionally. Um, and that's just, and I think that's just to the way that I have to heal, you know, I can't keep, you know, and not, and, and I know for us, 
you know, me and my family, that's the best way for us to, to, like you said, that this is the outcome. Let's figure out how we can support her, you know, moving forward. I had this perfect pregnancy and I didn't know anything was going to happen um, to where I really felt a lot of mom guilt. Like what could I have done different? And, and I know, you know, I know logically I, you know, I did everything I could for my baby, you know, like I did all the things I was supposed to do and all this stuff, but you still have that, you know, that mom guilt and, and, and seeing those images and knowing that that was the life, you know, that my daughter was going to live it, you know, emotionally, that was very tough on me as a, as a mom, because it was like, I couldn't protect her and, you know, in utero. Um, and so that was really, really tough to kind of deal with. And then thinking, you know, like you, you kind of go through these emotions where is it our fault for wanting another baby? You know, did we do this to Lennox? You know, had we not wanted another baby, she would never have to have lived this life. And so that was really tough for us, you know, and, and logically, I know that that's, you know, not, you know, that that's not true. And, and we didn't do this, but that was really something hard that we had to really like, you know, really talk about and, and talk to other people about, um, because, you know, even, even, you know, when you have a healthy baby, mom guilt is still a real thing. Um, and so that was one thing that I really, really struggled with is, is I couldn't protect her. Um, and, and, and one thing that they did tell us at that 10 day scan that I think is important is they, you know, when babies have, um, when they do meconium, you know, have meconium in utero, that's not that uncommon. And it's really not usually a problem. Um, but when they take their first deep breath in utero and that meconium gets into their lungs, that's when it becomes a life threatening issue. Um, and so they typically don't aspirate or take that big breath in, in utero, unless there has been a stress that has caused that. Um, and so there was a stress that had happened, you know, within those couple days before birth that had made her want to take in that deep breath. And so when we, when we did those, that 10 day MRI scan, they did see a spot on the brain, um, where she had had a stroke prior to birth. Um, and they could tell the time frame because it looked like on the scans, you know, as, as your brain has damage, it starts to heal and looks different on MRIs. And so they could tell that that part of the brain, um, that damage was more than 10 days old. Um, they thought probably 13 to 14 days old is, is what their estimation was. And so we know that she had a stroke in utero, probably two to three days. So just to be clear, the meconium aspiration did not cause the stroke. The stroke caused the meconium aspiration. Is that right? Absolutely. So that's what we were basically told, you know, by the neurologist and the specialist is that um, she had this stroke. It then caused her body into stress. So she had the meconium. And then she, because she was in stress, she started breathing like she was outside the womb. She took those first deep breaths out, you know, in the womb instead of outside the womb. Another thing that we learned too is, is baby, you know, when babies take that first breath outside of the womb, there's a lot of chemical and physiological changes that happen from a lung standpoint. Um, and so those things didn't occur because she took that breath inside the womb. Um, and so that, you know, that's one of the reasons that, you know, she went into PPHN is because all those things that were supposed to happen where your body starts breathing through your lungs and, and starts oxygenating the blood couldn't happen um, because those events didn't happen because she didn't breathe, take that first deep breath outside of the womb. Womb. So, um, yeah, that's basically, you know, what, what is what, you know, and they don't, you know, they can't ever say for sure. And they don't even know why she had a stroke. 
Um, I think that's, what's hard too, is why, you know, why did she have a stroke, you know? Um, and, and they, they just, they just don't know. There's not any, you know, they did, you know, when she came out and, and they tested her for viruses. I mean, they tested her, you know, everything they could have, they tested her for viruses and they, you know, took amni, you know, um, spinal fluid out to make sure she didn't have any, like, there was no problems with the spinal fluid with bacteria or viruses or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And everything was negative. We just kept getting negative and negative and negative which is good, but it also doesn't give you a root cause, um, which sometimes helps the healing, knowing exactly what caused the situation for your baby. And so I think that's a lot of where the mom guilt came from is because I don't know what happened. Um, I don't know what caused it. I don't know why she had a stroke or why, you know, why there was an issue where she was stressed out enough to have the stroke and, and those kinds of things. And so, um, so yeah, I think getting that, getting that scan at six months was really like, this, you know, there, it took a lot of the hope out of it. You know, we still hope for a miracle. Um, we know that, you know, those things are possible. Um, you know, and I remember acting, you know, asking the neurologist at the time she gave us those scans, how does a baby survive this? Um, she has no brain tissue. How does she survive? Um, and the one thing that she, you know, that didn't get damaged in all of this, you know, the circulation issue that she had a couple of days after birth and the stroke she had in utero was that her brain stem is fully intact. Um, so that part of the brain is not damaged. It has no damage to it. Um, and so your brain, you know, your brain stem controls, you know, your, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your breathing, your sleep patterns, your, you know, awake and sleep patterns and all the things that are essential to, to living. Um, and so, you know, this, this trauma or this diagnosis is not what, you know, it's not, it's not life-threatening. Um, this is something that she will live, a, you know, a, law, a, a life, you know, a long life on, um, you know, what typically happens with these babies, if they're, you know, if their life is cut short is due to a complication things because she's constantly laying down and can't move. Um, those are the things that, you know, that, that are going to be struggles for her, not Stephanie has so much more to share about Lennox and their journey as a family from what a day in their life looks like to Tefra to DNR to a few other things in their life that are that's very critical to how they live and how we can support them in other ways. So please tune in to the next episode of We Saved You a Seat, uh, which should be released tomorrow. Thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to you listening to the rest of her story tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family, or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.